You've just tuned in to episode one of the UX Whisperers podcast. On today's episode, we're covering a highly debated topic in the field, biases within UX research. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the UX Whisperers podcast, powered by Userlytics. On this show, we focus on sharing UX insights and knowledge to help make the world more user-friendly. I'm Nicholas Aramuni, your host, and whether you're a seasoned researcher or you're just starting out, I welcome you to join us on this journey as we dive deep into the fascinating world of UX research. Today's episode is on a very hot topic, and I don't mean trending. I mean hot topic that is consistently and thoroughly dissected in the world of research. Today, we are talking about biases in UX research. And to do that, we have a very special guest with us, one of Userlytics' prized possessions, researcher on the team here. Sarita, please introduce yourself. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to join this podcast. Uh, yes, as you mentioned, I work at Userlytics uh, almost two years now in the team of professional services as a senior UX researcher. Super excited to work with different clients, different industries, and helping them improve their user experience in different assets. Well, I know it personally, I'm sure your clients know it personally, but you always do a phenomenal job. I've learned a ton from you and the team since being here. So I know that the audience will take a lot in from having you around. Uh, and again, thanks for joining us. I don't know where you're located right now, but I'm sure it's somewhere fun. Where are you at right now, Sarita? I am in the south of Spain near Cadiz. Okay. So for those that don't know, Sarita has been known to jump around here and there from time to time. If you ever want to speak travel and world destinations, Sarita is the person to do that. Not to put you on blast, Sarita, but that's just <laughs> that's just how it is. No worries. No worries. I'm also a, a no, digital nomad. So <laughs> this is part of my life. This is part of also what I share. So any questions? Um, super open. <laughs> we'll drop your uh, contact links in the comments below so people know how to get the perfect advice from a world traveler. So Definitely. Without, without further ado, Sarita, I want to jump right into our topic. And it's always good, I think, to start from the top. So from your perspective, how do we define bias in research? What does that look like? Well, I would define bias in research as like an unfair distortion of judgment, either in favor or against something or someone. And basically in UX research specifically, it's mainly against or forward one idea. So in research, this manifests in many different types. And we as researchers use different ways and techniques to reduce it as much as possible. Uh, and in UX research, I would say, that the consequences of this distortion of the the judgment or the reality are basically providing insights that are not correct and therefore making decisions based on this incorrect ideas are just going to lead us to something 
again, incorrect in our digital assets. Yeah, first of all, that was amazing. Uh, I almost think we should quote that as the name of the episode because that was so well said, <laughs> to be completely honest. <laughs> I think the interesting thing with defining bias in research is as much as it can vary, it is pretty pretty much exactly what you said. It's a distortion one way or the other. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. We don't We don't know. And that's likely because there are so many different types of bias and certainly don't want us to cover them all because we don't have enough hours in the day to do that <laughs> and of course i can speak to this too but when we're sort of discussing the types of research bias that we tend to see distorting one way or another what do you think appears the most in ux research and perhaps even why that might be i would say that yeah as you were mentioning there are a lot of biases that present during ux research but i would highlight one that is called the confirmation bias. This is generated when a person that is too close to the development or the design team carry out the, the studies because they're too involved and might want to explore only what they think they need to know and not like all the panorama. The bias then generate it's generated when the researcher looks for answers that confirm their idea and not what the user truly needs wants or does. So for example, if you have a feeling that a button's location is not working very well and you want to actually locate it in a different place, you might ask the users, was the button difficult to find? Which is a close-ended question. And using this negative language, you might lead the user to say, well, yeah, actually it was difficult, uh, but maybe that wasn't their initial thought. Uh, they actually didn't even express this when they were browsing it themselves. But when you ask the question in that negative like bias, you're leaning them to think, oh, maybe it was. And maybe I'm just going to tell them that it was because <laughs> maybe they want that, that actual uh, response. So this actually comes with another bias that presents again in a... In, uh, in researcher that is from the side of the users, which is actually what I was saying that the user wants to please the, the moderator. So their answers are not going to be honest enough. And they just want, they're, they're just going to answer what they think the moderator wants them to answer and not what they're really thinking or feeling. So these are two biases that are really important to, to take into account, both in the side of the researcher and on the side uh, of, of the user. But we also have, for example, biases when we select the users that are going to participate in a study. Obviously, it is important to select a profile that adjusts to your target base. But inside it, you have to take into account diversity, diversity in other aspects, such as ages and attitudes that might be important to, to include in your study. So it is vital that when you're designing a, um, a study, you, you take into account what is your target base and what is, for example, the market sites that they represent so that you can actually take sample a sample that represents all of the of uh, of the population that is either your user base or potential user base so they are all represented in that sample of study that you would have and there's also biases inside the test itself for example we 
maybe we present several alternatives to a user when we do, for example, a competitive analysis. So we present different websites to the user. And for this, it is always too important to randomize the order of the presentations that you, so you are completely sure that the preferences and the impressions that the, the user gives you are not dependent on the pre which one was presented first or which one was presented last. So I think these are like different types of uh, biases that we see in the user, in the researcher, in the test itself, in the sampling that are really important to take into account in UX research. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that you mentioned there stand out a little bit too. And I think you're talking about diversity and representation. I think when sometimes people hear that, they're thinking just age, gender, ethical background, economic economic status and things of that nature. But even that diversity, I know from past experiences that sometimes companies tend to only test with some of their highest paying clients because they want mm -hmm. to satisfy those clients. And sure, that's important to get their perspective. Uh, but really, that doesn't actually cover everybody. Uh, and that itself, I know you're trying to please your biggest user if you would mm -hmm. at the end of the day i think that has pretty substantial negative consequences to the people that probably have just as much important things to say and i think as an extension of that too when you get too close to research sometimes like you said the confirmation bias uh you tend to try to cater to the wrong p or not the wrong people but not the ideal person uh mm -hmm. how easy is it to write a question that says you know how good was this experience instead of how good exactly. or bad was this you know what i mean and uh yeah. there's those like little assumptions right well if i say good they might answer and say well it wasn't that good but you've already mm -hmm. sort of used the old police trick you know like <laughs> did you, how fast was the car going when it hit you well that's kind of leading you know you can't yeah. uh you can't say things that way and yeah definitely I know you touched on a few of sort of, you know, you started off with the idea of things get distorted, insights get distorted. And that sort of circles back to a question I want to ask too. And, and that is, what are some of the, I guess, dangers or issues that come with biases? I know we can just broadly say, hey, there's there's consequences, you know, but uh, what does that actually look like, you think? And how does that impact organizations or, or the research study itself? Yeah, definitely. Well, for for answering that question we go back precisely to that definition of bias because i would say that ignoring the biases will give you precisely a distorted version of the reality of your digital products state and the the uh, perceptions that they the, the users have of it so therefore if you end up doing changes and developments based on those distorted uh, reality you are not going to get the results in, for example, their ROI or other metrics that you would expect. Because if you do changes based on something that is not completely true, the actual consequences of those changes that you do are going to be distorted as well. Also, not reducing the bias of the users might end up giving them things that they don't really want. So at the end, you end up not only giving your results, uh, something that is not going to improve them, but you're going to affect them negatively and you're going to affect negatively the experience of the users. So actually ignoring this is it's going to impact the whole experience in a negative way. And things like sampling bias, where we, you don't have a sample that is really 
representative of the population you're analyzing threatens also, for example, the external validity of your findings, mm. which actually means that you cannot generalize the findings of one study to other situations, to other people, to other settings or measures. So this is not going to actually be scalable from one study that you do in order to be able to generalize those findings that's, that you get from it. Wow. I think, and the important thing here too, is sort of what you touched on, Sarita, is there's two sides here. Like you're impacting the user for sure, because you're creating things that maybe they don't want because of some of the biases that exist, but that also impacts the business. And mm -hmm. I think we talked about in, in sort of in brief, you sort of mentioned that they start to make changes that aren't valid. Uh, and as researchers, uh, side note, I was a researcher too, audience, don't worry. Um, <laughs> The sort of the validity of your research comes from building a foundation, right? So you start off maybe with a customer persona, then you run interviews, and then you just keep building from there as you wireframe and things like that. So in order for your research to work, it has to be sound, valid, and you can stack on top of that. And sort of what you said there too, the more you make those decisions, the more you're stacking in the wrong direction. Voila, not only is the user impacted, now businesses are losing money. They're losing users. So don't just think it's the users that are losing. It's also the businesses mm -hmm. and the organizations. Um, yeah, definitely. And you you lose time and effort from your team if you're actually doing a research that is going to give you distorted results. So you're losing time doing that research, and then you're losing time and resources invested in doing changes, doing developments that at the end, when you do other researchers, you're going to find out that the, the that improvements that you do are not giving you the results that you want. And then you have to start all over again. So it is very important for businesses and for the, the final users to actually um, take into account these biases and trying to reduce it uh, as minimum as possible. So you say reduce it as, as much as possible and I mean, it's easy to say that, uh, <laughs> but sort of like one of the things that stands out is how do we even know if we're being biased, right? So uh, sometimes, you know, we talked about being too close to research and perhaps confirmation bias, but uh, sometimes you're just a passionate researcher, who, researcher who's in a project or in a study or one particular field, maybe it's fintech or maybe it's music or whatever it is, and you get so entrenched in it that you kind of mistake passion for bias, if you would. Okay. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here because I know there's no perfect answer, Sarita, but I'm sure you'll give a good one. What makes it sort of challenging to identify our own biases? Why is that so hard? I think that there is no way to eliminate bias completely because we are human and we are doing research with other humans. So we are not perfect and therefore, uh, it is impossible to have a perfect research, both on the side of the researcher and of the user, because you don't have the control of either of them 100%. However, for example, doing a good preparation of your research, checking that you're not biasing the answers from your discussion guide, or that the sample you're using is trying to represent as much as possible, for example, using the market research that your company does in order to see what are those different uh, attitudes, the different characteristics of the, the profile that you need to include in your research and working with others to review that what you ask and what you are researching 
is actually including all of these techniques that we have talked about is something that you can, it's a, it's a good point to start mm-hmm. uh, to actually reduce as much as possible that, uh, that biases that you can have. So I think the preparation phase, the actual um, a starting point from uh, when you start doing your research questions, when you start creating your discussion guides, that is the point where you can stop and say, okay, let's look at this from other sides, from different perspectives, people that may be outside of it, uh, of the study and, t- and just preview it uh, to see that uh, maybe things can be taken out or things can be redacted in another way. So you reduce those biases. And then during, obviously during sessions, for example, if you're doing moderation sessions, just try to say things, for example, as um, starting an interview with a with the user and just putting them at ease that you're not um, evaluating them, you're evaluating the digital asset, that there are no right or wrong answers. This might, for example, reduce that, that bias of trying to please the moderator so that the user has that empathy with the moderator and feels like they can speak freely during that during that session. So these are things that obviously you have to take into account when preparing that study so that when you do the actual study, all of those, those biases are reduced. I mean, again, you bring up some pretty interesting points. I think first, the first thing I want to kind of like touch on is, is the authoritative sort of aspect of being a moderator in a study. Uh, you know, Maybe not everyone realizes realizes this. Researchers know this, and people in the UX field know this. But there, we're in the human business. We're in the psychology business. We're in the human interaction business, right? And so, that sort of rapport building stage is okay. so much more than just saying, "Just so you know, there's no wrong or right answers. Uh, please speak freely." You know, it, that's not it. There's, this is actually one of the things that we do as researchers is really try and, or we're supposed to do, hint hint is try and actually engage with the person and be at that core empathetic and understanding and listen. And I think that's where that comfort come from, comes from. And I think that's how we can also serve ourselves by trying to remove that authoritative bias of, hey, no, this isn't about you, it's for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want you to help us because you have all the answers, we don't. Um, and just finding a way to communicate that I think is important. But then also something that you mentioned there was having other people review the work. And I, I'd like to think that most people in UX like to be ethical. And we're in the business of trying to keep things, again, valid and ethical. So there's a network out there that you can share your studies with. Now, of course, within data, you know, privacy, legality, norms, please follow those. But there's always good coming from you getting a second set of eyes, whether it's internal, whether it's external. It's not like you have to go to a company and hire them to do X, Y, Z. You can ask a company to do a consult consultation review of, of your discussion guide. And that small step that might take an hour is going to can help make differences. So I think those kind of speaking to the points you made are important. And I know in the past, you and I have talked about this. And so I wanted to bring it up here. We live in a time where fast iterative research is so prominent. Um, And I kind of want to open that up to you to talk about, because that has an impact uh, on our study. You you just mentioned the preparation work is so key. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk a bit about that, Sarita, that sort of like agility, trying to get things 
too quickly, too fast, consistently going. Uh, what does that have? Uh, what impact does that have on on bias as well? Yeah, I, I do think that this, for example, agile techniques, they're really good, and it is shown that that the impact on product development it is really good. But when you do research, this preparation phase is crucial because you do want to actually get your answers, but you want to get the right answers. Once again, I go back to that. Don't lose your time in research and in iterations that are not based in completely and truly um, valid results. Because at the end, you're just going to have to repeat everything, uh, not only the designs, but also that research. So you're going to lose time uh, and, and resources on it. So obviously it is not possible for everyone, for example, to involve professionals in the research process. Mm -hmm. And there's sometimes no time to do it because you do have to launch the next development in a month or, or in two weeks. And so I would say that just if you go small and do things um, really well done and really well prepared, but tackling one or two main objectives, but doing it well, you're yeah. going to have more uh, valid results and actually the impact is going to be greater on your digital asset. So don't try to cover like eight or 10 objectives in one and just try to launch. For example, you could actually launch a 15 minute study just to, to tackle that one or two objectives you have for this iteration, but well prepared, you're going to actually check that uh, that issue or that question that you had there. And for the next iteration, you can tackle the next two and the next two. So I think that it is important just to stop and and try to put your roadmap in a way that you can do the research well done, mm -hmm. but at the same time, cover those deadlines that you have. Well said, well said for sure. And I think that's being specific Again, we went back to that, going back to that validity point, right? If you're specific, intentional about, you know, one or two things maximum, you're way more equipped to, first of all, avoid biases, but you're making more informed decisions because mm -hmm. it's so specific, right? You're so narrowed into a certain topic or area. Uh, you can master that, not master it completely because UX research never ends, uh, but at least get a better feeling before you jump on to the next step. And sort of when we talk about iterating, we have to talk about design and research processes and, and things like that. And sometimes I think it's fair to assume that biases are, are somewhat like systematically built into these processes, if that makes sense. Like they go through a certain routine. Um, and I guess from a high level, Sarita, it's curious to sort of discuss what research teams sort of can do to work to address the sort of systematic bias that exists with the process in research or the process in, in design. And I kind of want to get your perspective on that a little bit. Yeah, I think something that is, I would say is a very good practice is just to involve all the team members in the brainstorming of that initial part uh, of your research. Because if you mix different perspectives from developers, from the design team, from the business side, and whomever you got involved in the process, you're going to reduce the bias because you actually are taking different points of view and I, different from yourself. So working in teams already is reducing the bias. 
but also you can inform yourself and the team with techniques of reducing biases in the research itself. So as, as we've mentioned before, for example, something as easy as randomizing the presentation order of a website or of different assets that you're comparing or of the answer presentation, or just apply them in, in the inside the research, for example, you can reduce the yes or no answers and provide more rating questions, more why questions, more open-ended questions in order for the user to be able to express themselves more freely. These are really small techniques that have a huge impact on your research. So if you inform yourself, if you are educated with these small techniques, but that have huge impact, this is things that are going to start to become automatic in yourself. So you're going to start writing less of uh, this more leading questions, you're going to write more open questions. And once you start getting in the groove of, of this unbiased uh, way of research, you're going to be able to uh, make it more automatic and reduce uh, all, all the time and every time more the, those different biases. Additionally, you can take advantage of like digital platforms, like such as Userlytics, where, for example, you can do research yourself with methodologies, for example, as the unmoderated testing, where you're, you're already reducing the moderator bias. So you can actually take advantage of this technology, or for example, the, the tools that are integrated in these platforms as the randomization, that you can actually click just the button to randomize your answers, and you're already reducing another bias inside your test. So actually taking advantage of your team, of the information that you have out there of techniques to reduce the bias and of technology is going to help you each time reduce more and more your bias in, in your research. Seen, I know we've touched on this too, but that importance of sharing, right, too, because if you can use platforms, and I know there's biases that come with some platforms or tech in general, maybe not platforms, but if you can really harness that idea of sharing, and getting more people involved, perhaps looking at insights or perhaps crafting the study or helping with every part of the study, the more people that are involved, maybe not too many people, but the more <laughs> departments, people that can be involved, sure, more biases might come, but you're also getting more perspective. And I think what comes from that and something we almost alluded to here is that importance of education. When we talk about how do we deal with systematic biases, it comes down to education, right? Um, we know that platforms can help reduce biases because we've we've used them before and we've done research without platforms and seen, wow, okay, I made a couple mistakes here. You know, we all do, it all happens. You mentioned we can't completely get rid of uh, biases, yeah. unfortunately. And so I think that education piece plays a huge role in, in sharing, learning where to go and how to sort of, even internally review your process to understand, are we actually systematically biasing our design? Are we following one trend? Uh, are we doing things the right way collaboratively? Uh, are we using, making data-led decisions? All those things come into play. So very well said. I think that's a bit different though than, you know, we talk about one side like businesses and researchers, but then as researchers who deal with perhaps stakeholders or clients or even agencies, what is that, if we kind of flip it on our head, what is it like to sort of maintain objectivity with stakeholders or clients that have their own bias or perhaps their own agenda? Uh, what is that like, you think, Sarita? 
Yeah, the projects we do with clients uh, always involve uh, an initial call with them. So we can have the context of the product or the service we're going to test, the objectives that the clients have, and also maybe the hypothesis that they want us to validate. However, after that call, we actually, when we are creating that study, we uh, do our own exploration of the product or of the service to have that general and external look uh, and maybe spot things that the client may not have pointed out. So then we are again, reducing that bias of the confirmation uh, bias because we do give another point of view. So each time you add one different perspective, you are reducing that, uh, that confirmation bias. Additionally, when we start writing that uh, guide itself and in the moderation we do, we take some steps again to reduce the bias, like phrasing the questions in more neutral or non-judgmental tone, open questions so we don't guide the user one way or another. For example, if we do want to, them to do a task and we do want to take them through a path that is important that they go through it, we have to, to re redact the, the instructions in a way that we tell them th to do what we want them to do without giving them the right answer. Uh, so this way, the, it is something that we obviously can tackle those objectives that the client have, but in a way that is uh, completely objective from their side and from ours. Uh, and also, for example, we, we do have to take into account that the biases can also be reduced when we do the analysis of the results. So when client hire us to do that analysis and report of, their, of the sessions either done by them or done by us, we also can include other techniques like actually comparing that expectations that the users might have before actually interacting with a product or service and then comparing it with what they are doing while they're interacting with that service and actually seeing the differences between what the users are saying and what the users are doing because sometimes we can be surprised that we say, oh yes, I would definitely go here and there. And then in the next task, we ask them, okay, let's purchase this. And they actually do something completely different. Right. So this is important for, for, um, for and an actually an advantage of having an external consultant is that you get this more objective and detached uh, perspective, both on the creation, but also on the analysis of the study. That objectivity piece is huge. And I think there's like that fine line, right? Because you do have, you know, you, you have to assume that people that come to you, you want to satisfy your stakeholders and clients, but you have to probably assume that they know what they're talking about in most cases. So you have to balance between prioritizing, you know, this is for all your ex-researchers who work with, I guess, clients and agencies is you have to balance the principles and the, the priorities they have with the truth of what you know. And I think you said this in the past too, Sabrina, it's knowing how to speak the language of your stakeholders, right? So even sort of what you're saying, making that comparative analysis of what they think might happen, you're still prioritizing their research objectives and what they think will, but you're almost flipping it on its head, right? You're giving that openness, that that opportunity for the user to actually express what they want without being too narrow on, hey, did you hate this experience? Or, hey, you know, were you able to locate the peanuts on this website easily? Uh, you're, you're still sort of testing it, but you're giving them that chance. 
and that builds trust. And I know that in that, whether it's a external team or internally with your own organization, that tends to be the most important thing with your research. Can you be objective? Can it be true? Can it be real? Can it be true? And can you verify that and then build off of it as you go? So very well said, yeah. actually. And actually, I've, I've worked both inside the client and, and in the agency side. And I think it is also very important here when we talk as researchers to these stakeholders, especially if they're in the design team or in the business part uh, of, of the development, to also include in those results things that are going to be pertinent for them. So obviously, uh, we do research and we do gather up some findings from that research, but in those recommendations, if we tend to speak directly to the design team and use their language, but also, for example, say how that impact might have in, in, in the sales or in the click-through rates, which is something that is going to be pertinent, for example, for the marketing team or the sales team. This is something that is going to start to build that trust relationship with the clients where they understand that, yes, we might have um, distorted a bit the, the initial objectives that they shared with us, but that the, at the end, what we are showing them is going to have a great impact in their needs, either were the specific needs that they shared with us or other needs, but at the end, we are just helping them, their business, but with the insights from the user's perspective. So it is just like a, like having a triangle. No, we are in the middle of the, the user and the business and the, also the, the digital asset. We are like the moderator between the three of them trying to give the user the best experience, but the business also to thrive and with the limitations that we have of that digital asset. So it is just trying to find the balance between the three of them. So you know what's interesting, Sarita, of all the things that you've brought up today, and they've all been interesting points, I feel like when you use the word distortion, it completely captures exactly what bias is. And if you think about it, the impact that it can or almost have a ripple effect on an organization, uh, having you know one perspective or driving one way, that distortion has a long-lasting ripple effect on the business decisions they make. And then externally as well, too, for us researchers, the distortion that happens with bias if we follow through with it is we're not providing our stakeholders or clients with the truth. And I know you mentioned something about using platforms that really help deal with those biases. But I kind of want to flip that in its head because I know that as much as technology can be good, sometimes technology can also have a biasing effect on our research. So we talk about, you know, chat GPT even right now, which is such a hot topic. I'd, it's everywhere in the field, no matter what industry I guess you're in. But for you, as we talk about tech, how do you see technology or AI playing a role in perhaps reducing bias or even perhaps increasing bias in the world of UX research. Yeah, as I mentioned before, I think that research tools that are now available, for example, the Userlytics platform help a lot teams to create research, specifically if you don't have like a dedicated uh, research team inside uh, your company. 
And for example, there you can get help of avoiding these biases, for example, by providing these unmoderated methodologies, giving us a chance to randomize answers, the order of presentation, giving us access to a panel of users in all of the parts of the world and every single profile that we can imagine. So the recruitment is actually random. And even giving the option to hire research experts like us to maybe do or review those guides, moderate as external users, or to analyze the results from an outer point of view. However, the thing with technology is that it brings other biases into the mix, like if we didn't have enough. And this also <laughs> might influence, for example, the fact that users inside a online panel are also a bit more technologically advanced than the average user, obviously. Uh, but then again, we can only search to reduce all bias to a minimum. And as we move forward, more and more people are getting used to working with technology. So this bias is going to start reducing by itself. And when testing digital products and service, doing research using technological tools might be the best way to do it. And also as researchers, tools like user-related advance and integrate other technologies like AI or VR. And we are there not only reducing biases, but we are adding triangulation, which is something that we use in, in, uh, in research and we have used throughout uh, the history of use, uh, research that is using multiple data sources in order to boost the credibility of your research. So you can mix the human and maybe subjective interpretation of the results with also objective data. When you see, for example, heat maps or eye tracking, whether you, you actually see what the users are seeing or where their eyes are going, what are the facial expressions? So this is actually something that is going to add into your research and therefore reduce other type of biases. See, and that's so huge because I again talking about how we're in the people business. Sure, there's going to be technology that creates more bias, but then there's also going to be technology that offsets that bias. So it's almost like one combats the other. And I guess it goes back to where we almost started from, which is the need just to be aware of it and how far that can actually go. And then also that important part that validity part, we talked about, you know, stacking your research, triangulation of data, so impactful there, because you can have an unmoderated session, but then also have somebody participating in eye tracking and perhaps sentiment analysis, let's say, and then know that if they're actually feeling aligns with what they're saying, they're feeling. But Sarita, that is all. I want to give you a huge shout out for being here today, but also... <laughs> for being our inaugural guest on the podcast. I wish I had a gift or I should probably make you like a medallion or a medal or some <laughs> sort of trophy to be like, you did it. Thank you. But I, I do appreciate you. Thank you so much, Sarita, for being here. No need, uh, Nick. It was a pleasure and an honor to be the first guest here. It was a super interesting chat with you as always. And I hope this podcast continues tackling this very interesting subjects in U.S. research. Well, we'll surely hope to have you back here too, Sarita, because I know you have many interesting things to say. Um, but for now, that is all from UX Whisperers on today's episode. Do stay tuned for more upcoming content on how we can discuss, dissect the many facets of the world of UX research. 
Signing off, I'm Nicholas Aramuni, your host, wishing you all the best in your UX testing adventures.